0: SPS is back and I'm very excited to bring you this episode featuring Aaron Saddleoff. It's a story of service, resilience and finding passion and purpose. I'm Josh Walker and this is SoCal Pickleball stories. Why you tell me your name and what you do?
1: My name is Erin Satteloff, and I am currently a full-time pickleball coach for beginner and intermediate players up to about a 3.5 level. So I actually have like 5 million employers at this point. Um, so I work for the city of Los Angeles. And so I work for Encino Recreation, Woodland Hills Recreation, and now Chatsworth Recreation. And then I also coach privately every other day. I'm currently a seven-day-a-week coach. I'm coaching a combination of class. Classes and private lessons, group lessons, different clinics, live ball. I coach for Warner Center occasionally, so I'm all over the valley all the time.
0: That sounds exciting. It sounds uh, very busy.
1: It's extremely busy, which is why you can hear that my voice sounds hoarse. I am on court seven days a week, um, and I have no self control, so I don't say no, and I just coach until the end of time.
0: It seems like you're giving out
1: a lot of instruction. It's the best job in the entire world. Where did you grow up? I grew group. In Chatsworth, so I haven't gone far in a full circle kind of way. I grew up in the Valley and then left Los Angeles, basically from the time I was 20 until the time I was 30, maybe 32. <laughs> so I was gone for a long time as well.
0: Wow! So born and raised in the Valley.
1: Oh yeah, all the way. I went to Chaminade, which is a private Catholic school in the Valley, and I've been here my whole life. My parents grew up in the Valley. My grandparents grew up in the Valley. So we're long-time Valley people for sure. Yeah.
0: That's great. What year did you graduate at
1: Well, that's a really complicated question. I graduated in 2002, but I would have been class of 2003, but I skipped my senior year. Um, I was an angsty teen. You could call it that. I've always been really passionate about equality, especially when it comes to sexual orientation and identity. And I was at a Catholic high school where I would not say tolerance was the number one word that we used there. Okay. <laughs> so I had some major attitude when it came to high school time and decided to leave after my junior year. So I did officially graduate, but I did not attend the senior year part.
0: I see. After high school then, what happened? What took you away from LA?
1: So after high school, I had no direction. I was only 16 when I graduated, um, which is crazy young for anyone to go into society. I worked full time, I went to junior college, but I had no real focus. And then I met some army recruiters on my college campus. And that was the beginning of like the full next chapter. As ridiculous as this is to say, I used to be a boy crazy person. And those recruiters looked so pretty in those uniforms. (laughs) And so, um, no, I sort of just thought I needed structure and I found it interesting, the idea of traveling. The male aspect was not a bad thing for me at the time. And so I joined the Army when I was 20 years old, much to the surprise of my entire family who did not have anything to do with the military. All were college graduates um, or had college attended and were working full time. So this was a shock.
0: Wow. So just floating around kind of after high school and junior college and found an Army rep- recruiter and thought, this is my path? Yeah.
1: And I wasn't thinking this is my path, but I thought this is an experience that I would like to try. Um, So I joined the army and I was in for about five and a half years as an Arabic translator.
0: Oh, okay. And how did that come about?
1: So when you join the military, you have to do a bunch of different batteries basically that indicate your aptitudes and your strengths and what you might be good at for jobs and different things that you might be eligible for and i tested really really high on the entrance exam which is considered it's the aptitude battery once you test on that particular exam it opens up all the opportunities for jobs that you now qualify for based on your score. One of my best friends in high school was, is from Lebanon and spoke Arabic. And so I knew I wanted to try to go into languages and I scored very well on the language exam as well. And they just happened to assign me Arabic as my focus of study. Did you speak Arabic? I did not. It was all based on aptitude and all the exam results. So they thought you'd be good at it. Yes. And you just happened to have a friend that, that spoke Arabic. Yes. It was a really insane coincidence and it was exactly what I really wanted because I had always wanted to learn and speak with his family and then that's exactly what happened.
0: In your first year or so, can you just kind of walk me through how that would work with I assume basic training and then learning your job and stuff like that? Yes.
1: So the army is wild. Um, You go to basic training, which, you know, you used to hear on like the news or in movies, you go for nine weeks. Well, it's a week of in-processing and then nine weeks of training. Then you go to AIT, which is the advanced individual training for most people, but not for me. Because I was a linguist, I went straight to language school after basic training and did that for a year and a half. I really did just basic training and language school for the entire first year that I was active duty military. Whereas most people get basic AIT and then their duty station. I was in training for a much longer period of time. Because you had to
0: learn the language.
1: Exactly. And you have to learn it, pass it, pass the test at the end, qualify and All these different ways, and then you're allowed to go to AIT and then a duty station. So it was a long training process.
0: All right, so let's back up a touch. The first week of in processing is what? The
1: first week of in processing is crying. No, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, no, seriously, it's just like pure stress because you get to this place and you come in on a bus after you get um, off your
0: plane. Sorry, where where was this?
1: I was at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri and I'm from Los Angeles. So this was already a shock in every possible way that it could be. You get off the plane, you immediately get onto a bus, they bus you into the base and you immediately start getting yelled at. Like within four seconds of the door of the bus opening, the drill sergeants come up, they start screaming at you. I think just to shock and desensitize you a little bit. And then you get changed into your military lounge wear if you will. (laughs) So they basically assign you um, physical training clothes, PT clothes, and you wear that the entire time that you're in processing, at least when I went in. It's like basically a pair of sweats and a sweatshirt and shorts and a t-shirt underneath. So you do paperwork the whole time. You have to open a bank account so they can auto deposit your paycheck. They make you go through financial counseling, mainly because a lot of enlisted soldiers come into the military and go absolutely insane with their first regular paycheck. They go, they buy like the first used car, they find right off base where everyone's trying to like swindle you, they get a million tattoos, you know, there's a lot of beer. So they try to tell you ahead of time, like, please do not do this and sabotage yourself. Right. And just a bunch of paperwork, equal opportunity briefings, every type of mandatory information you can imagine. STD briefings. I mean, like literally everything.
0: Right. So a lot of housekeeping admin type stuff. Yes.
1: And yelling and crying.
0: And then so after that week starts the basic training. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Basic training is insane. If I was giving advice to my younger self, I would say go in with a pure sense of humor and do a lot of running before you go there. Um. So basic training is a ton of physical training. They want to get you in physical shape so you can do push pushups, sit-ups, run, you know, drag your buddy in case they get hurt. You know, all of the things that you would imagine a soldier might have to do under duress. Um, And then it's also to get you familiar with the weapons systems that they offer, how to use weapons safely, how to work as a team. You have a battle buddy that you're assigned and you and your battle buddy have to do everything together. So people that never had to work together before, they're learning how to get along. It's obviously a really diverse group as well. So you're learning how to work with other people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different values, just to get through it, pass their PT test and make it out on the other side without completely having a nervous breakdown.
0: Yeah. And so what were some memorable workouts or drills that you had to go through?
1: It sounds like maybe we would do a variety of things that would be interesting, but this is just not true. Okay. You are doing a lot of repetitive things. So the one thing that I thought was really fun was combatives training. Um, You're in a giant pit full of like old pieces of tire and rubber. So if you fall, you don't get hurt. And it's like literally hand to hand combat, but you're doing it in a safe, controlled way. One of the things that we did was with pugil sticks, which are these long sticks that have almost like a boxing glove on either end. And you have to just hit each other and try to avoid being hit. It's ridiculous. And I can't imagine ever doing that in real combat.
0: Right, it sounds like, remember the Joust event in American Gladiators?
1: It's exactly like that, where you have that stick and you're like hitting someone on one side. Oh yeah, it was ridiculous. The other thing I remember a lot from the physical training is the track that was made for conditioning. So it's a little softer of a track. It's got loose dirt and sand, so you don't have a clear way to push off with the foot. So it's way harder to run on that track. And so they just make you run and run and run until you're very, very sad, honestly. It's really horrible.
0: And then, so the whole time you're with your battle buddy and you guys are just kind of getting through it together. Yeah,
1: and you're you're with your battle buddy and your squad and your entire unit that you're with. So you have your primary battle buddy. So if you have to go to the bathroom, your battle buddy goes with you. You're always supposed to be accountable for that person and they're accountable for you just like you might be in an actual wartime situation. Mm -hmm. Everything is mental training in basic training as much as it is physical, in my opinion. Sure.
0: Was the squad co-ed?
1: Oh, yeah. For me at my base, it was completely co-ed, which... (laughs) I think is very unwise, but maybe necessary. At many other places where they do basic training, it was still gendered. So like, I believe there's basic training in like Fort Sill, Oklahoma, that's all male. Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri was co-ed.
0: And so how many females were in your squad or in the whole base? Oh, that's a great question.
1: God, I actually don't know. I feel like females make up about 30% of the force. And I feel like the demographic was pretty accurate. I was in an eight person bay when we're sleeping. And there might have been four bays for the females. I know this was in 2006. I don't remember all of those. Yeah, no, all good. All good.
0: Yeah, just curious. And so, like the sleeping arrangements, was that all co ed as well? No,
1: totally separate. The men cannot come into the female barracks. The females cannot go into the male barracks. Um, I believe they were separated either by a door and they were half and half, or maybe we were on a different floor. But they definitely wanted to keep all personal engagement to a complete minimum. Yeah. And there was no co-mingling in that sense.
0: Sure, makes sense.
1: Uh, According to the rules.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so why do you think that it was a mistake or, or do you think it's better to be gendered?
1: It's not that I think it's better to be gendered. It was just that the amount of drama that came out of having both male and female in this high stress training situation was outrageous. A lot of people got in trouble for meeting up privately when they should not have been. You're really there to focus on on how to be efficient with your body, how to understand, like I said, those weapon systems and know what to do in the worst case scenario of war breaking out at home. So I really just felt that it was distracting more than anything. Not It wasn't for me personally, but it was for a lot of other people. But you
0: saw it. Yeah, yeah. I, I get that. And so, you know, on a day-to-day sort of schedule overview, maybe, like if people are getting together when they're not supposed to be, I assume you had some downtime or like, was it just wall to wall?
1: Okay, this is terrible. And you're going to just... It's so gross. But what would happen is no, there's really almost no downtime unless it is like scheduled and monitored downtime. There's cleaning time, but you're in your separate bays. So you're not co-mingling at all. It would be more like if we went to the weapons range and two people had to go to the bathroom. I see. Yeah. It was kind of that like sneaky and then sneaky, but getting caught all the time because people are not sneaky at all
0: so from wake up to sleep it's all scheduled there's no downtime
1: yeah the only time I actively remember having downtime and I wouldn't even call it that is we had to go out into the field and build these hasty fighting positions it's a ridiculous name what it means is you have to dig a hole and lay in the hole because that's the what they wanted us to do so we built these fighting positions and then the drill sergeant said okay now you guys have to monitor your fighting positions until we tell you not to. And it was like four hours of doing nothing but sitting in our holes. And the only reason I remember this so distinctly is because I was attacked by the biggest spider I've ever seen literally in my entire life. Like in the woods in Missouri, things exist that I just didn't think should exist. And this thing was What I thought was a tarantula, but I was told later was a wolf spider. And it literally came up at me while I was laying in my hole and reared up on its little hind legs. And I'm telling you, my life flashed before my eyes. I could see its little fangs, I could see its legs moving. And I panicked and I froze and I was rescued by my battle buddy and her E tool, which is like a metal shovel. Nice. And she. She saved me from what was certain death, I'm sure of it. (laughs) It was really scary.
0: Wow, that sounds like something you don't really forget.
1: No, I'll never forget that spider.
0: (laughs) You've mentioned it a couple of times, but what's the difference between a bay and a barracks?
1: So a bay is where there are multiple people in one room sleeping. And in this case, there were eight of us, eight women. And a barracks, usually you have either your own room or you have your room with a roommate and it's not multiple people. So it's just, it's a training barracks, but with giant groups base because when you're doing training in the military, it's mass punishment as well. So if you win together, you do, and if you lose together, you do.
0: At the site in Missouri, were there multiple cohorts going through basic training together?
1: Yes, there were, but you're you're not really exposed to the outside sort of base world as well. Basic training is done in kind of a very specific zone. And I believe there must have been at least two other cohorts going, but we, you stay with your particular unit.
0: And so at the end, you mentioned there's like a physical exam. How is that?
1: So it's a PT test, a physical training test. In the military, you have to take them periodically. You have to take one at the beginning of basic training. You have to take one and pass it at the end of basic training. And then you need to take a PT test and pass it every six months to a year when you get into the real army. It used to be a two minutes of push-up two minutes of sit ups, and then a two mile run. With 10 minutes in between each event. And depending on your gender and your age, you had to do a certain number of each repetition, and then you'd have to run within a minimum or up to a maximum amount of time in order to pass.
0: Okay. And so when you first come in, you're obviously not expected to pass, but it's just to sort of gauge your progress.
1: Exactly. So you come in with that initial test, and they just wanna see, like, how much work do we have to do? And you'd have these, some people would come in after being high school athletes, and they would just fly through the test. And then you had a ton of people people come in where they hadn't done a ton of physical stuff in the past, or maybe they had done like, for me, AYSO soccer, and nothing that was gonna significantly help me. And so I had to really push the physicality of basic training to make sure that I pass that exam.
0: And what happens if you don't pass?
1: Uh, You don't graduate basic training if you don't pass your PT test. You'd have to stay and they call it like rolling back into the next class. Maybe you only go back a week depending on if there's another cohort behind you. Um, Some people have to go back several weeks and then they have to take it again until they pass. In the real army though, if you don't pass your PT test, you are not eligible for promotion. You get flagged so you can't get promoted. You can't go to specialty. Schools, there's a bunch of restrictions that happen if you are not deemed physically fit.
0: And at the end, you passed your PT test?
1: I did, yes. And my weapons qual, everything, yeah.
0: Awesome. And what's the weapons qual?
1: You have to just be able to go through their weapons course essentially, doing static and then pop up targets. You have to meet a certain number of requirements, hit a percentage of targets in order to qualify.
0: Gotcha. And so, what was the next step for you then?
1: So, after I graduated basic training, then then I went straight to Monterey, California to the Defense Language Institute, where you go into a one month company there. a the company is kind of like a unit and it's just to integrate you into the facility so you don't get there and go crazy. And I, I keep emphasizing this because soldiers go in and they're so young and they have all of this responsibility, all this pressure, but they're also getting paid and they have no bills because you don't get a car when you're that junior. You're having your housing and your meals paid for. So they want to make sure you get there and you have self-control and that you're not going to start acting against your own interests, ultimately. Um, And then after that, you go to your main unit where you spend the entire rest of your time in language school. So
0: in that, you mentioned was like about a year and a half for you?
1: Yeah, I think I went, I started in August of 2006 and graduated in December, 2007.
0: And you spent all that time up in Monterey?
1: Yep, the entire time studying Arabic, uh, full Arabic immersion, Arabic culture as well, um, studying Islam and how that works into society. Everything that you really need to know to effectively translate Arabic and English. Mm-hmm.
0: And all that was done on a US Army base? Yep,
1: and it's actually, it's a joint military base. It has all the different branches um, and it's a full military language facility. So they teach every language you could imagine there.
0: And in Monterey, so was it, was it nice up there? Oh,
1: I'm telling you, if <laughs> best location in the entire world other than my next location. Monterey barracks over, like, you can see the ocean. I was 21 or I was, you know, I turned 21 while I was there and you can just walk down this, you know, the big hill to the bars. It's Franklin Hill. Um, yeah, it was a The best assignment ever.
0: At this point, I assume there's off days and downtime.
1: There is, yeah. If you are doing well in your classes, you're basically working kind of a nine to five. Um, As long as you are doing everything you're supposed to, you get done by about 4 p.m. and you have most weekends off. Um, I believe every holiday we got a four-day training holiday weekend. They know it's stressful. You're trying to master a language that is, I mean, especially Arabic, Chinese, uh, Tagalog, all these really difficult languages, and you're trying to do it in a very short period of time compared to other professional linguists so they make sure you have time down really for me that was spent partying (laughs) (laughs) listen I was 21 yeah
0: no I get it
1: you can't tell today because of my hoarseness but I actually really like to sing and I'm a pretty decent singer and so I did a lot of like the karaoke bar that was downtown. But we also showed up every morning to our physical training. We passed all of our exams. It was kind of like being in college.
0: Yeah, that sounds like an exciting time in your life.
1: It was definitely exciting, but the problem is that I didn't feel well for a lot of that time. And I had tonsillitis five times in a year, which is really strange. I had a bunch of weird things going on and I kept telling the doctors like, I don't know what's going on. And they thought it was, that I was just really stressed out, which, understand like i'm young i'm in the military i'm doing this language stuff so once i graduated from the military language academy uh, the defense language institute i had to go to texas for training and then my health really took a weird turn i ended up developing a heart murmur i had like extreme fatigue and i was only 22 and basically the doctors really insisted that I was just stressed out and that stress was causing all of these physical symptoms, but that turned out not to be the case. Um, So while I was in advanced individual training, doing, just learning how to use certain systems that I would need, which I I really can't talk about that actually, I found out that I had tumors all over my thyroid. I went and saw a surgeon and the surgeon basically said, it's probably cancer. You have to have the tumors taken out no matter what. Um, So let's schedule your surgery. And my military commander, said that without a definitive proof that the tumors were cancerous that I was going to have elective surgery and that I was not allowed to have the surgery. Wow. Yeah, so it's a, it was really just a weird, really stressful time, even though I think it should have been a lot more fun and exciting.
0: The physician who said it it was probably cancer, was that a military physician?
1: No, and it's a really weird kind of complicated system with the military and medical. If they cannot handle, or if they do not have the resources or the availability to do something on base, they will refer you out onto what they call the economy and you go see a civilian doctor. So this civilian doctor, is the one that said hey we've seen that you have tumors you need to have them taken out and it was then my military commander who is in no way shape or form a medical professional who said well if it's not cancer in advance it's going to be an elective procedure and so no you may not.
0: Wow so they referred you to the doctor but didn't even honor the orders.
1: Exactly so I had to then at 22 active duty trying to just learn everything I can, super stressed out, fight against my commander as like a very junior enlisted person just to have treatment. Ultimately at every military base, or at least at every army base, there's the inspector general, which is kind of like your internal affairs. So they started an investigation based on my complaint, but they said, this is a life or death type of situation. So you need to go to your congressman. And I was in Texas doing training, had to call my congressman here in LA who is still the Congressman Brad Sherman. Yeah, sure. And his team had to intervene on my behalf and call the commandant for the entire training base, who then had to talk to my commander who was eventually relieved of his command due to poor judgment. Wow. Yep, and I ended up getting the surgery, it was cancer. It was insane to think that if I hadn't kind of had the personality to fight for my treatment that I probably would truly not be here.
0: That says a lot about you. I mean, to advocate for yourself like that against the army, 22 years old, good for you.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that, but I just look back and I think of how many other young females in the military did not have the ability because they were intimidated or because they felt that the rank structure prohibited them from doing so and then had some consequences. That pisses me off.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, that's great. That, I mean, that's great to hear. I'm glad you're able to, to talk about it today.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. It was wild.
0: That surgery uh, happened in Texas?
1: It did. It happened in Texas. Um, my surgeon was 450 years old and I when I first met him I was absolutely sure that I was going to be left with like a very strange looking scar but he had the best hands of anybody ever I'm sure it was his many years of experience and he did the surgery no one can even see that I have a scar they never would have guessed that I've had surgery there um so yeah it's pretty amazing I was very lucky
0: And so after that uh, ordeal what did your active duty after training look like?
1: Okay, I have a tiny story about this because it's one of the more satisfying moments of my entire military career. When you're in training, everyone is waiting like with bated breath to get their orders to see where they're gonna get stationed. And some people wanna go back near their houses, you know, where their families are from. Some people wanna go overseas. I wanted to go to Germany. I really did. I aggressively wanted this assignment. Something had happened in the past when I was in training in the language academy that made me think that maybe I was gonna get it. Basically, uh, somebody needed a big favor from me. I did the favor and they said, I will do my best to advocate for you to get stationed in Germany. There was this one girl that did not like me in my training class. And every time the unit uh, assignments came up, she would tell me, she's like, you're never gonna get Germany. You're not gonna get Germany. You're not gonna get it. You're gonna go to Fort Hood like everyone else. You're gonna go to Fort Hood. And I don't know why she was so rude about it, but she was. And when the day we got our papers with our assignments, I didn't say anything, I just sat there because I read that I was going to Germany and I was legitimately thrilled. And she had already said she got assignment for Fort Hood, which is (sighs) in Texas, in Killeen, Texas. Eventually she turned and she goes, so will I see you at Fort Hood? And I had the distinct pleasure of Telling her that, no, I would be going to Wiesbaden, Germany and not to Texas. Wow. And that is where I spent the entire rest of my time in the military.
0: As an Arabic translator in Germany.
1: As an Arabic translator in Germany doing a remote mission in Afghanistan. If you know anything about Afghanistan, Arabic is not their dominant language. So it was kind of like a running joke between me and all the other linguists that didn't speak Pashto, which is the actual language primarily spoken in Afghanistan, um, because we didn't have a lot to do in general. I had French linguists, Chinese linguists, another Arabic linguist, a Russian linguist, all assigned to a unit that was running a mission for Pashto
0: translation. Describe what the remote mission means.
1: So basically we had boots on the ground Um, and other entities in Afghanistan, and we were using all the technology that was at our disposal to evaluate information that we were getting from those players in country, and then giving information back to the people on the ground. Really, it was like we were there deployed on mission, working mission hours, which sometimes was 18 hours a day, but we were just doing it from a skiff, which is a top secret room essentially in Germany. It was wild.
0: Yeah, that's something that, I mean, I'm just trying to think about all that. And um, you said you had other linguists that spoke all those different languages just in case something would come up.
1: That's it, yep. And I really can't go into like a lot of detail about how that might've come up, sure. um, but yes, you're, you're there in the event that you are needed. I see. And so you're doing another job, another type of job while you're actually working since you are not needed for direct translation. What did that look like? Monitoring technology. I can't really say more than that. (laughs) Thanks. So that was like
0: day to day for how many years in Germany?
1: I was in Germany for just under three full years. I got there in October of 2008 and left in late July, early August, 2011.
0: And so you would go into your SCIF did you live there, or you lived off-site, and you came in like to an office, essentially. For
1: the first year or so, oh, this is so great. The military is hysterical. If you you know you can get past all the craziness, for the first year we had to drive about 45 minutes from our actual base to a separate top-secret facility that had all this technology. Okay. And that was cool. I mean, you had to drive about 45 minutes through like the German countryside. I one time I saw a badger crossing the road. Like it was it was interesting. Yeah. Um, it also snowed out in that facility, but not in the city where we were generally speaking. So there were many times where it was just a very silly situation. You're out there in these buildings that were really meant to be temporary and they've been there for like 40 years. It's not super warm and inviting and comfortable, but it's kind of silly and you're all in it together. And so there's a lot of camaraderie in that sense. There weren't any restaurants, anywhere nearby. So you had to bring your food in. And there were a lot of pranks because you're in the military. And so it it was a fun situation when we had to drive out and do the mission. Sometimes mission would be at two o'clock in the morning. Sometimes we would work from 8 p.m. until 7 a.m. and then go back and do physical training. So it was just a really extreme type of lifestyle. But then they decided that they were going to spend Literally, like a million dollars to put in a skiff on the base so we didn't have to drive and commute anywhere. But it's the military, so things don't go exactly as planned. And they did two really funny things. They put our skiff on the first story of our company building, which also has an aircraft hangar okay. because we used planes and they put it in the building in such a way that if the planes were running and starting up that all of the fumes from the jets oh, f- no. would come into our skiff and make everybody feel a little weird. Um, So they had to fix the flow and they had to do all this like duct work after the fact. They also installed this like four inch thick steel door on the outside all seemed normal, but on the inside there was a whistle. And so if you were working on the inside of this building where you had to be for six to 18 hours a day, you had to sit through a constant whistling sound when the door was secured, which was 100% of the time. It whistled because the airflow or something? Because they did something incorrect with this steel door that when it was open, it was fine. But when it was closed, some little pocket of air was coming through and torturing the people inside. So people were getting rabid. They were starting to like verbally protest going in. And it became to the point where people were angry, just flat out mad. Like this sound started to make people angry. So there was a lot of turmoil and a lot of back and forth and construction that had to be done secondary. And then, you know, a third time and a fourth time. This is just ridiculous and this is the military for you. <laughs> it sounds
0: a little annoying.
1: It's really all of the military though. It's the same story everywhere you go. I gotcha. Planning and execution are tricky.
0: I assume since you wanted to be in Germany that you like Germany, you had some sort of connection there.
1: I really just wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to experience a totally different lifestyle, a different culture. I thought it would be fun. Everyone told me that when they had been in Germany, it was like the best duty station ever. And it really, really was, except that I was working a mission. So I was working six days a week up to 18 hour days and I didn't get a lot of time off for myself. I definitely saw my local area of Germany and I attempted to take a 30-day vacation one time. The word attempt is really key there because it did not happen. I planned and went on a 30-day vacation with an ex-boyfriend and the day before a road trip across Europe, this guy told me he did not have a driver's license. Oh, no. Okay, let me just tell you, that was a very interesting conversation. We drove, I drove from Germany, to Paris as our first leg And as we like crested over this magical hill, looking over the city, this freaking guy realizes that he had not packed his passport. Oh my gosh. I don't even know at this point what to say because I'm thinking like, it must be a joke. Like this sounds like the beginning of like a sketch of some kind. No, we were on a 30 day trip with no passport for one of the people in Europe. So we went to Paris. We had a great time for, you know, I think we were there for five days or so. And then we had to fly to England. And this is where I was stressed out because without a passport, passport. England is not part of the EU. Like this was a little tricky, but the best thing in the world happened. We happened to be going through at the same time as a NATO attache was going through security and we had our military IDs. So we just like walked right behind them and they asked if we were part of NATO and we said yes. (laughs) And they said, okay, great. Come on through. Thank you for showing us your military IDs. So we got really lucky. And that is where the luck ended because we went out to dinner that night and I got what I thought was food poisoning. So I woke up miserable, as you can probably expect, and I went to the hospital. I was told, go hydrate, you'll be fine in a day, but if it gets worse, come back. Long story short, it got way worse. I ended up being hospitalized for seven days um, with Campylobacter poisoning, which is like a water bacteria that you can get off of like bad lettuce or like in other countries. Like, it was so ridiculous. Most people only have mild symptoms and I ended up literally hospitalized for a week. Had to be isolated for two weeks because then you can technically be contagious. The rest of my vacation was completely canceled. And I had already been to France and England once before with my family. So I saw nothing new on my European extravaganza.
0: (laughs) That's too bad.
1: It was, you know, it was par for the course. Yeah. No driver's license, no passport, hospitalization. Like, what are you gonna do?
0: (sighs) You finish up your time in Germany, a couple years you know, spent there working. And then did your time in the army come to an end? Your contract was up? How, How was that?
1: So I had a medical situation come up and I I made the choice to leave the army because of that medical situation and so I did. I got out and I think they all realized like yeah, I had had kind of a rough time. Yeah. So I left the military at the end of 2000 2000- like middle end of 2011 and moved back to LA for a year, um, where I went to community college just to buy time. Really at the end of that year, I was getting married at that point and we were going to get married in October of 2012. So we did. And then I moved with him up to Fort Lewis, Washington, Mm -hmm. where he was stationed. Gotcha. And then I went up there and went to college. And so that was the next big change that happened.
0: Sorry, the fort was where
1: in Tacoma area of Washington state. Yeah. It's Fort, Lewis McCord. It's a joint uh, army and air force base. You guys moved up
0: there. What happened then? (laughs)
1: Oh boy. We moved up there. And the very first thing I did was go to the humane society and adopt two kittens before we even had signed for a rental house because I knew it would take a couple of days to get the kitties. Okay. So obviously my priorities were very clear. Yeah. (laughs) I wanted those cats. Um, no. So I went up, sorry, Christian, if you ever hear this, but it was the same boyfriend who had not had a driver's license and who had forgotten the passport. So you ended up marrying him? did end up marrying him. Wow. And nothing really changed based on those two examples. He did not ever choose to get a driver's license, so I actually drove him to base every day at 4:30 in the morning so he could get to PT by 5. Then I would come back where my house was and go cuz I used to do CrossFit and I would go to CrossFit at 7 a.m. Then I would go to school all day, come back, pick him up at the end of his day and then come home and study. And I did that for a year and a half and then I graduated really quickly because I worked Mm -hmm. extremely hard. Yeah. But it was tricky because I had to do all the driving. I felt like I was, I had to be the boss all the time. I felt like I was almost like, A mom. It was really, it was no fun. It was not fun. So we obviously, we didn't have kids or anything like that. And after I graduated from the university of Washington with a 4.0, I was very proud of myself. I went to grad school, just like a little personal thing. I, all that time we had seen a marriage counselor and there were a lot of issues with, um, alcohol use on his part. And so we ended up separating, um, and we never got back together. I see. Yep. And I went to grad school then. And then I was at UC Davis for a year getting my PhD.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. PhD in what?
1: Going for a PhD in uh, sociology, specifically with an emphasis on uh, socioeconomic status and education, and then how that leads to literal physical safety for those who choose to join the service. I did a year, did really, really well in my program, but I absolutely hated it. So I left. And after a year, I moved right back up to Washington State, but not with my ex.
0: You never finished the PhD program?
1: No. it On average, will take about eight years to get a PhD in sociology. There's so many steps. You have to do a dissertation. You have to defend. It's just an incredibly challenging, long program. And if you do not love it, There's no reason I thought to spend almost a decade of time doing something I did not love.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
1: And also, just coming from the perspective of I had already survived cancer, I had already done military service, I knew what I wanted, and it was not that.
0: What was it that you wanted?
1: That is a good question. I didn't know what I wanted until 2020, (laughs) (laughs) which is ridiculous. And so, after grad school, I went back up to Washington. I worked full time, I worked in a middle school in the office. Um, I just didn't have Again, I just didn't have direction. I didn't know what I wanted. Um, I had this crazy resume and nothing I was really that passionate about doing. Eventually, I worked. And I had gotten into a car accident and all sorts of weird things occurred. So I quit my job. And I thought this wasn't making me happy anyways. By then I had done all the paperwork and I actually ended up being service disabled through the VA at 100%, which is really unique in a way. It's really rare for someone as young as I am with only about five and a half years in service to come away with that level of disability from their service. And so when that was granted to Me, I decided to sort of just try to live my best life for a year or so.
0: What year was that?
1: I got that in 2018.
0: Broadly, you don't have to be too specific, but what does that mean?
1: Whenever you are in the military, any injury or let's say trauma that is caused to you while you are active duty because of your service, you can file paperwork later to say, hey, this is what happened. This is how I'm paying for it long term. So, will the Army or it's actually the Department of Defense, specifically Veterans Affairs, will you guys acknowledge that you caused this and compensate me for it? Having been a cancer survivor, where obviously I had to fight for my treatment. I had a labral tear in a shoulder. Both of my knees have sustained some injury. So there was a lot of stuff that I said, hey guys, like if this is your policy, I would like to be compensated. I, you know, I worked really hard and yeah. you guys tried to kill me once. So please, you know, pay me. And they agreed. They said, Oh yeah, whoopsies, sorry about that. Um, but yes, we acknowledge that we did this and we are going to grant you this amount. It's complicated because. Because everything that you file for is based on some sort of percentage of disability. So when my shoulder was the first thing they said, oh, you, we're going to grant you 20%. And then they added on for each knee was an additional 10%. Um, and it kind of builds like that. So getting 100% is very unusual.
0: Wow. Good for you. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously you wish you weren't, you know, injured, Right.
1: <laughs> yes. but I'm glad you're
0: being compensated and I'm glad that it seems to have, you know, at least some sort of a positive outcome.
1: Yes. I would prefer not to have any part of my body be injured and not have have had endured any you know trauma or anything in the military. But I think it's important that veterans then hold the military accountable because a lot of the injuries that happen, a lot of the trauma that's happening is preventable. And I think if the military treated soldiers and airmen and uh, seamen and Marines better, we wouldn't have as many injuries and mental health crises and then suicides After military service. So I think holding them accountable for me was my primary motivation. But yes, I appreciate being compensated as well because there were definite things that should never have occurred.
0: Taking sort of a preventative route, you think would be more beneficial than just paying later?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, not to be sad about things, um, but I lost a client last week to suicide, which is extremely devastating and heartbreaking, but it wasn't my first time experiencing that type of loss because there are 22 veterans a day that commit suicide and that is reactive we are reacting and if we could prevent some of that if we offered better mental health care if people weren't living with chronic pain because their bodies were not abused by the system we would not have as many cases of suicide as we currently do
0: yeah wow You're granted the disability. You decide to live your best life for a year. Yes,
1: I did. And that, by the way, involved buying a horse, which was my lifetime little girl childhood dream. So I did, I bought myself a horse.
0: And where was the horse? What city were you living in at the time? I was
1: living in Puyallup, Washington. I bought the horse in Washington from a a friend of mine. I kept the horse at the barn that he had already been raised and living at. I owned him for a little bit less than a year because ultimately I ended up moving back down to Los Angeles and could not, I just couldn't take him out of his environment. Yeah. Um, I didn't think it would be fair to, to the horse to go from like Washington weather and a barn that he had been at for 10 years to bring him down to like Southern California with You know, fire danger and heat. I just don't think, like for an animal, that that would have been fair. Just for my own personal pleasure. So we, I sold him right back to his original owner, my friend, and he lives his best life. (laughs) That's
0: cool. You eventually moved back to LA.
1: I did. I wasn't dating anyone up in Washington anymore, and I wasn't going to school because I had done all my school that I had intended to do at that time. Um, and I had quit my job, and I missed my family. I wanted to come home originally just for a few months just to be October's my mom's birthday, November's my birthday and my brother's, then Thanksgiving, Christmas, January. I thought, okay, I'll come home for like the winter, you know, winter in LA. No, I'm joking. I'm not that type of person. (laughs) Ultimately, I got down here in October of 2019. And in January of 2020, while I was in the process of buying a house in Washington, no travel was allowed because of COVID. It hit and everything shut down in Washington first. So I pulled my offer from the house. I stopped the process. I wasn't going to be able to travel back up there at any reasonable amount of time. I had left all my Stuff in storage in Washington with the intent of literally just being down here for six months and going back. So all of my personal belongings all of my household furniture is still there. To this day? To this day. I'm supposed to go get it sometime like in April or May, but I got down here, stayed with my mom for a few months thinking, oh, I'm just going to hang out with the family. And then I got trapped. And then LA Housing Prices did something very fun. Not fun for me, but fun for very, very rich people. (laughs) They went like double or triple what they had previously been for a little while. Yeah. So there was no housing opportunities. I couldn't go back to Washington. So I have literally Been staying in my childhood room since then. Wow. It is hilarious, but it is. (sighs) There are challenges associated with that. Let me just put it that way. I bet. I had to paint. The room was like burnt orange and now it's a gray. So you're back in Chatsworth? I'm back in Chatsworth and I would like to eventually buy a house and relocate but the problem is that in the middle of being trapped here I discovered pickleball. And that's how we come full circle to how this podcast kind of came about, right? For me yeah. being here.
0: So it's early 2020. Yeah. And you're in Chatsworth. And I'm in Chatsworth. And then how did you discover pickleball?
1: My mom and I were doing something very bad. We were playing tennis. <laughs> we were playing tennis. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Bad. No, I'm just teasing. So we we decided to take some tennis lessons. I had played as a kid, but I wasn't really proficient. I wanted to be more active. My mom's fun. We decided to do it together. And then my mom injured her shoulder and could not play. And. I had been watching the pickleball people. So tennis court is on the left, the four pick or the two pickleball courts are on the right in Chatsworth Park. And I saw like all these people out there having literally the best time ever. And I was out there like struggling to be a decent tennis player. Even though it was fun, it felt like a little bit of a punishment because I'm 5'2 and I'm not built to like speed run. (laughs) Sure. I can do short bursts of energy, but like tennis court is really big. Um, No, it just wasn't my forte. Um, I don't hit as hard as, you know, other tall people. this. So I asked the pickleball players, like, firstly, what is what are you doing? And how do I also do this as well? Because this looks like a good time. Are you a private group? Are you guys just like a group of friends? And the answer was, we're playing pickleball. This is a public group and you can join us anytime you want. And I did. I started playing three to six hours a day as a brand new beginner. And then in my first year of playing, I did 18 tournaments. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I kind of hit the ground running. Jumped really, right in. Really, really hard.
0: And so you started playing at Chatsworth Park? Yeah, Chatsworth Park South. I know when I started playing, there was a couple of guys who kind of gravitate more towards being a mentor, helping people. Were there people like that for you?
1: Yeah, there were. In fact, there were two people in particular, um, Sue and Saeed. Um, They were a married couple and Saeed and Sue started Pickleball in Chatsworth. They really started it in Woodland Hills, but Due to some housing and noise issues, they ended up shifting over and advocating for pickleball at Chatsworth Park South. The nicest humans that you could ever imagine. Um, I still see Sue once in a while when I get a chance to play. Um, But unfortunately, a little over a year ago, Saeed passed away. Mm. Um, And he was truly like beloved in our community. One of our members made a rack for the paddles and it's really well crafted out of wood and it's dedicated to Saeed. And really like his You know, kind of presence lives on through Sue, but also just through the fact that he was like that founding member, the nicest guy, always had a smile for you. Like just couldn't imagine a better person to welcome me into the game.
0: And that's the paddle rack at Chatsworth Park now? It
1: is. It's this really gorgeous, like beautiful handcrafted wood paddle rack. Yeah.
0: Wow. That's pretty special.
1: It's super special. Uh, one of our members named Gary made it and it's amazing. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. You jump right into pickleball. You start playing, you get the bug, get addicted, start playing tournaments. Take me through 2020.
1: 2020 was really just rec play. No tournaments were allowed at all until the beginning of 2021. But I only found it in like, maybe I only found Pickleball in about September of 2020. So I played September, October, November, December and then went wild. And I did my first round robin and I meddled, you know, it was like a 3.0 round robin out at iPickle. I think it was out in Pasadena. I was literally hooked after that. I did seven more tournaments really quickly. And then in the month of June, there were five weekends, like kind of like it was weird. Like the first weekend was a half weekend in June. And then the last one was like the last day of June and the beginning of July, I ended up doing six tournaments back to back between the whole month, of June in the first week of July. In 2021? In 2021. I spent like a ridiculous Ridiculous amount of money. It was so stupid. And I but I regret nothing. It was so fun. Um, I, I did well. Like I meddled a ton. I used to do singles, doubles, and mixed doubles. Eventually gave up singles just because my knees are yeah. so cranky about it. I did it all. I meddled in everything at a 3-0 level and I did really well. And then someone asked me if I would help them, give them some pointers. And we met up and I did that. Then I had another person call me and say, Hey, your personality seems really fun, would you consider coaching some beginners. I was really intimidated by this because I hadn't really coached anything in the past, like middle school volleyball. We'll not get into that. Just imagine I'm 5'2 and did not play volleyball <laughs> in the past, just so you know. <laughs> so that was kind of an adventure. Um, But so I really wasn't sure if I was going to want to coach, if I was going to be a good coach. I did, I went and got certified through the PPR and I got certified as a coach. I passed the test like super high, but you know, obviously I was only a 3.3 player at the time. And I started coaching and I coached privately at first and then someone else reached out and said, hey, I know that Braemar Country Club is looking for a coach. Do you mind if I recommend you? And I started working for Braemar Country Club And then someone else said, hey, Woodland Hills Recreation is looking for a coach and we really like you. Would you consider working for them? And that is how I ended up with five or six different bosses.
0: And so you mentioned that you work through the city, through some city park and recs departments. Yeah, three of them. What programs uh, are offered through what cities and like how people can find that?
1: Oh, yeah. No, that's a great idea. So basically through LACity.org is their general parks and rec or rec and parks, by the way, I've been corrected. We all... All know the show Park and Rec, so we all say it, but it's actually Rec and Parks, which is irritating now. They all were getting demands for pickleball, so I offer a beginner, which is like an intro to pickleball class. An intermediate level, um, which when we're talking about tournaments, this is not related to our tournament level of play as far as intermediate goes. Um, This is just progressive. So if you do a beginner pickleball class, the next class is considered to be the intermediate level. And when you are comfortable with skills, I also offer an advanced guided play. And we're still talking all within really beginner to advanced beginner for the general pickleball population. Yep. So I offer all three of those classes at all three locations, Chatsworth, Woodland Hills, and Encino. I offer classes three days a week currently, both in the morning and in the evening. And the reason I do that is because I really want to accommodate everybody that wants to learn. My big thing is that I want to make myself available and affordable for people because I'm more interested in the joy of the game rather than in the money of coaching. My best friend's a lawyer and he keeps telling me, you need to raise your prices. And I keep saying like, no, I'm not going to, because I want like the elementary school teacher to be able to take a lesson if they want. I want the college student to be able to take a lesson, or I want the family of four to be able to take a lesson and not be priced out. But that's why the classes through the city are so good because they're super affordable and they are both in the morning and in the evening for everybody's schedule.
0: Wow, that's great.
1: It's so great. It's really, truly lucky. I'm super, super happy with my life right now.
0: And so your main clientele are beginners, advanced beginners, people just starting out in the game.
1: Definitely a lot of beginner players that want to just get the introduction and then a ton of people who have been playing and want guidance in their games. So I have, I mean, My classes are so wild. They filled up, the registration for Woodland Hills filled up in 22 minutes and the registration for Encino filled up, I think in 26 minutes this last round.
0: And that's for a set number of classes? Yeah, it's for
1: like an eight to 10 week class, depending on the location and which day of the week with holidays. And the registration opens and you can self-register. So, People have to self-evaluate their level, um, which can be really interesting. Sometimes people think that they're beginner, but you're like, whoa, you are definitely on the intermediate side of things. And sometimes you get intermediate players that probably should have started or repeated beginner class again. So it's really interesting. Almost everyone, I would say probably about 85% are over the age of 50, uh, just based on scheduling demographics um, where I particularly work. But I also have like a handful of like much younger, younger clients that want to do tournaments, that want to train and learn more advanced elements. I'm a really different coach than other coaches that I've watched because I try to do uh, mechanics as far as like shot construction, but then I also have them planning their approach and thinking about strategy and evaluating opponents. So I try to bring the full game to every client as much as I can.
0: Yeah, that's great.
1: I I love the sport (laughs) as you can probably tell.
0: Yeah, and so it sounds like you didn't really have an intention of becoming a pickleball coach even though you got addicted to pickleball, playing tournaments, you know, sometimes back to back to back to back weekends. (laughs) foolishly. It never really crossed your mind until you started getting asked
1: yeah, and that's what was kind of amazing. I really wanted aggressively to like get up immediately to a four oh level and then climb up to four or five and then, you know, I mean, I, I really wanted to focus on being a player. I think like competing and going out there and drilling is so fun. I love it. I had zero intention of coaching at all. I had planned to just be essentially retired through the military and try to live a life of low stress, mainly because my body clearly does not respond well to high stress situations. But when I started to coach by request, I just fell in love with the process of coaching. And I started to prioritize coaching and being with my clients over my own play and my own drilling. Um, And I'm only just now trying to find kind of A bridge between both of them
0: yeah interesting i think that speaks a lot maybe to your personality and to how you relate with others
1: yeah i know i agree with that i really like people for the most part and i really enjoy helping people and i guess the way i articulate information people have responded really positively to i try to break things down and i i guess i really just enjoy helping people feel like self-satisfied as well there's almost nothing better than when A client makes a shot that they did not think that they could make, but you had just taught them something. I just had a lesson with two women on Thursday and we were focusing on drives low over the net. These women both tended to drive really Aggressively and high, and they know the, the risk of this, right? And so, then working with them mechanically on their form and what they're looking for, and what the consequences and getting them to understand the game, as well as being able to execute a skill, translated into them performing 10 times better than they had previously been performing. And that to me is extremely gratifying um, for my job. Absolutely. I really truly love to coach, it's amazing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I see your face just like. <laughs> up you know when just thinking about coaching or just the game in general so i can tell
1: i did not think in the past prior to learning the game, that I was going to find something that I was genuinely like so passionate about. I am a passionate singer for sure. I really, I used to perform a lot. I actually sung in the military a little bit um, on a professional level. It still, it was like more nerves than it was pleasure. And I knew I didn't want to sit in an office and work. My body hurts when I do that. And so to find something that I could physically do that I really enjoyed to actually do myself and then to feel like very, very, very satisfied by working with others. I just didn't expect it. I didn't think that I would ever have that kind of relationship with a job.
0: What do you think it is about pickleball that that grabbed you like it did?
1: I think the first thing is totally a selfish thing, which is like, I am 5'2". I'm like short and like, Powerfully built. <laughs> Listen, that means thick, guys. That means thick, but muscular thick, right? No, I'm just teasing. But um, I really didn't have a sport in the past where I personally excelled in a team type sport. I was an excellent equestrian, but I didn't have a, an actual physical sport that wasn't like a million dollars to play um, because horses, guys, are like the most expensive thing on the entire planet, other than maybe children. And so this was the first time I felt personally empowered by my own skills on the course and things like that. So I think that's where the initial joy came from is like, oh, I was learning. I was learning fast. People were like wanting to play with me. People were complimenting my game and I was brand new. So I was like, whoa, what is happening? Like, this is a wonderful surprise that I can actually do this. And then once I was able to do it and feel really good about my performance, I think the acknowledgement from others that I had something to offer was like really emotionally satisfying for me because it kind of felt like life before this was really aggressively like struggling, a lot of anxiety, working, but not being happy or satisfied. So maybe I've answered your question.
0: (laughs) This is all great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, My my ability to play and then the way people responded to my personality, where in the past, maybe I've been told that I was bossy or too assertive. Like I said, when I was in high school, I was, you know, and still am um, very passionate about gay rights and about, you know, reproductive rights. And I think people kind of saw me as like hard and edgy and not in like a, like a cute way, you know, and that, that's not really who I am. I'm very passionate, but I'm, I'm really fun and I have a big personality and a sense of humor and people were were seeing that and they were responding to it in like a positive way. I think all of that together is what made this seem so exciting and it has not stopped feeling that way.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, sports are a powerful thing. Yeah, they are. (laughs) And pickleball being that it's so community driven, you know, that power is sort of amplified, I think.
1: Absolutely. And the personalities in pickleball are just a little different. Like, yes, people are very competitive, but people are really... They, they, they want to have fun as well. They want to support, they want you to hit an ATP. You know, there was just a discussion, I think on the kitchen on Facebook about, you know, I hit this amazing ATP and the lady on the other side, like rolled her eyes and she wasn't happy for me. And I took that really personally, you know, and that, that post made me laugh because I said, yeah, that sucks when my opponent or my buddy across the way hits a great shot, I'm excited for them. You know, yeah, I want to win, but I'm also really excited to see a crazy shot happen. I'm excited to see a tweener, you know, like it's a fun, joyful game that you can also go really, really hard at.
0: You got to give respect to great shots for sure. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's awesome. Do you think your military training and background has translated into your coaching at all?
1: I think my ability to lead groups and my lack of crippling fear of public speaking, I think that did have a lot to do with my military experience. I think being assertive and being able to command attention from, you know, 16 people and I'm the only coach, I think that definitely came from, you know, being a squad leader, being a sergeant, and having a lot of that background, but that has just kind of been my personality. I've always been that assertive person, but this was an opportunity to be assertive in a, really positive and fun way, not in a stressful way.
0: And through all your group classes and I guess your private lessons too, it seems like you've developed quite a community in the Valley. Is that right? It
1: is amazing. Yes. I have developed a ridiculous community of clients, friends, other players. But what really secretly makes me the happiest is when I have someone call me to say, I was at dinner and I heard the people next to us talking about pickleball and you are also their coach. So this has happened like five or six times where I'll get a a client calling me saying, we were just somewhere and somebody was talking about pickleball with you and they're happy having the best time in your class. And so that to me is insanely cool where I'm like, I don't need to be a pro. I don't need to go out and be, you know, worshipped, you know, by people at all. I want people to appreciate that I am literally putting in as much effort as I can to improve them and to improve their game and to make them have a really good time on the court. So it's really cool.
0: This game is so new and there's some new opportunities coming up, you know, the professional space and the amateur space. But, you know, as those of us who are really passionate about the sport are able to find our niche because there's so few pros in the grand scheme of things and, you know, even fewer that are actually making real money. Yeah. For the majority of us, it's going to be something like developing a community and coaching or me with this podcast trying to tell some of the untold stories, you know, in Southern California.
1: Yeah, I won't lie. It has been the best, most life-changing, unexpected situation I could have possibly imagined. I'm here living in my childhood room and I'm not upset about it. Like, yes, I want a house, but I mean, it's one of those things where my life is so much more valued by me now that I have established these relationships and I have this outlet of energy and I have all these people that I care about and care about me. And that's what I'm hearing from all my friends, whether they're coaches or just players, it's that their community around them through pickleball has enriched their lives completely. And I think that's about the coolest thing ever.
0: Well, yeah, you certainly have seemed to have found your niche and really taken your love of the game, you know, and made such a success story from all the, all like the hardships in your past, you know have come and and, you know really worked out
1: yeah i mean and i want to be clear like my past had some like really weird crazy things happen but like as a whole i've had a really really good lucky life you know i was raised in the valley again i went you know i i was fortunate enough to go to a very excellent school but yeah no i i definitely had to like deal with some major obstacles and coming out on the other side This feels like a bonus in a way. And I'm only 37, so this is like a weird perspective to have at this age. But like coming out at, you know, 34 and having a pension and not having a drive for something was just a weird kind of limbo to feel like I was in. And now I'm in no form of limbo and I know exactly what I want and I know exactly how to get it. Um, And I'm doing it every single day. I'm very lucky.
0: A couple of weeks ago, you had actually DM'd me and asked to be featured on the show. Yeah, I thought <laughs> your podcast that was podcast like is cool. very early in the existence of SoCal Pickleball Stories. You know, we talked on the phone and it seemed like it would be a great fit. It's exactly what I'm looking for for the show. And so why did you do that?
1: You know, honestly, I saw your feature on Angus. I just thought it was really interesting. And I think it's important that we have awareness of like the greater pickleball community. I think like for me, I honestly have as many clients as I can personally handle so I'm not on this podcast like you know to plug like my business you yeah, know i but I would like to Raise awareness of the sport. I want women that are in the sport and doing well to be noticed, especially people to see that, like, you don't have to be 25 and 5'9", and like the fittest person on the planet coming off of the tennis circuit to start playing pickleball and to try it. And I just think I represent a lot more of the general. Female population than maybe we're seeing, you know, when we're watching the pros play. And I think that's really been helpful for people that I know. They're like, oh, wait a minute, you look like you can do that really well. They're like, I can. I look like you. I can totally do that. I have lots of women that are like, oh no, I see now. You can hit that shot. I can try that shot. I just want to bring awareness to the sport. I want, especially women, it's true, to see that this is a sport that they can play. Um, It's team based. So you get a community. And I also really, I think selfishly want people to have a little more awareness of who I am as a person because I have a very strong personality. I want people to sort of understand like that, like passion is in all of my, my life. It's not just when I'm frustrated or when I'm really excited. So I think people getting to know me a little bit better is helpful. And just to spread the love for the sport.
0: Excellent. Well, hey, thank you for your service.
1: I appreciate that.
0: I'm glad you found pickleball, and I'm glad it's enriching your life. And I'm glad because of that enrichment, you seem to be enriching the lives of others by introducing them to the sport, and you know, leading them, them in classes. So, yeah, it sounds like things are going well for you.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you having me come and have you know a talk with you on your podcast. And yeah, you're absolutely right. I think being able to enrich the lives of others because you feel good is like a very amazing privilege to have. So I'm extremely
0: lucky. So I always finish up with a little speed round: drop or drive? Drop. Tournament or wreck? Tournament. Playing during the day or the
1: night? Day. Left side or right side? Right. I say that with a asterisk. Singles or doubles? Doubles. Mixed or gender? Gender. Dura or Franklin? Oh so Dura. Oh. <laughs> oh so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> favorite shot?
1: Backhand slice drop. Favorite drill? I really like a fast hands drill.
0: And favorite courts and so.
1: It's got to be the Newport Beach uh, Pickleball and Tennis Center
0: by far. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate this.
0: Thanks for listening.